I'm going to miss that song. It was fun. Uh, there are many things in my life that I am not indifferent towards, all right? You don't have to tell me to be indifferent or challenge me to be indifferent about things that I love and that I'm naturally, uh, naturally passionate about. For example, uh, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, the home of Major League Baseball. <laughs> the first service did that, yeah. Yeah, they told me when I moved out to New England, they are aggressively nice out here. Um, yeah, it wouldn't probably do well of me to try to uh, twist your arm to leave the Red Sox to be Reds fans, right? Or the Patriots to be uh, Bengals fans, right? Yeah, we've got a big game today. We're playing the Browns, right? I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to twist your arm to be passionate about your sports teams because you're like really good every single <clears throat> year, okay? <laughs> oh, I love how competitive we are as a, as a church, right? Uh, you don't have to convince me uh, about the things that you're passionate about. You're not going to be indifferent towards them. Uh, I uh, was a youth pastor and a campus pastor for uh, 15 years before I came here. Oh, 12, 13 years. Who's counting? Pastor Math, right? And one of the things that I try to convince our students, uh, middle school, high school, and eventually college students, that the best kind of music to listen to is blues music, right? Blues music. Santana, Eric Clapton, uh, Buddy Guy, Muddy Waters, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And some of these, some of these guys, uh, these students would be like, that is so old, right? And I'm like, well, I'm, I, it's, it's old for me, right? Uh, I was in my 20s at the time. And I said, come on over, have dinner, and uh, we'll, we'll eat some dessert, sit in the living room. It sounds like kind of weird sadistic now that I think about it. Uh, and then I will convince you that blues music is the best music you can listen to. So I'd pull out, ready? Old school vinyl records. And I would save the best for last when Eric Clapton was with Derek and the Dominoes. And he played my favorite guitar solo today, five to seven minute blues solo on the song, Have You Ever Loved a Woman? Can I get an amen if you know that song, right? Yes. All right. Yes. I love the amens and the excitement that happens. <laughs> I'm learning you guys. But they, they, would, they would just sit in the living room and be like, this is so boring. You don't, and, and that's the thing. <clears throat> what we're passionate about, we don't understand why people are indifferent towards the things that we're passionate about. My wife and I love to travel, and we're very passionate about where we stay. And two guys helped us figure out where we need to stay. They moved to California about 12 years ago, and uh, they realized, oh, the rent's really high in California. No, no kidding, right? And so they decided to go like Target or Walmart, buy three air mattresses, and start charging people that were traveling into the Bay Area a nominal fee for them to come and sleep on their air mattresses, take a shower, eat, and then leave. Out of that was birthed Airbnb, right? I think disrupting the entire hotel industry. Now, my wife has a high standard of living. I'm a dude. Like, if my underwear makes it into the, into the laundry basket, that's a good day. I don't really care either way. But my wife cares greatly. And praise the Lord, there is the Internet. Because some homeowners that put their Airbnbs online are very indifferent towards you and their level of hospitality. I will show you. The first uh, post that was made on Airbnb that I came across is called The Questionable Shower. And the, and the traveler said, we're not sure what is more disgusting, the missing tile that appears to be replaced 
with the cardboard or the moldy mildew tiles that are all over this pink tub. Or maybe the pink tub is actually the worst part. The next photo is called the bathroom. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, I remember college. I don't, you know. A lot of guys living in one space, it happens. Uh, the, the traveler said, yeah, if you have a big enough room, uh, I'm sorry, this may very well be uh, the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. How can anyone live like that? You've got to make sure the, the ratings are really high when you travel Airbnb. Now, this one's my favorite. This, this, I want to meet this guy or this gal that did this because they've got to be a comedian. This is brilliant. The title of their Airbnb, 22 Bedrooms in One Apartment. Uh, 22 beds in one apartment. The traveler said, yeah, if you have a big enough room, you can pack a whole bunch of beds into that room and charge by the bed. Or, integrity, <laughs> you can say your Airbnb sleeps 25 and forget to mention it's a studio apartment. <laughs> right? Can you imagine traveling the holidays and going into, you know, this looks like a Boston, New York City, some sort of big uh, city, and your whole family's there, your, your spouse, your kids and cousins, you realize... Everybody is in one room, right? Everybody that has claustrophobia is gone, right? They're going to stay at the Motel 8. You don't have to convince me to be passionate about the things that I'm passionate about, right? I'm not going to be indifferent towards them. And yet Christmas sort of rolls around every year. Not sort of, it does. And the older we get, sometimes it's very easy for us to be indifferent towards Christmas, right? Like finding a church service to attend, which you're here, awesome, uh, is kind of this, like in a long line of like, I got to go shopping, I got to make food, I got to invite people over, 80% of which I like, the other 20% I'm going to ignore, I got to find a church service to go to. And sometimes the holidays can be a grind where you're just like, I don't know if I'm really in it this year. But the Christmas story is not a story about indifference. Jesus does not invite us to remain neutral about him. It's just not a card that he's playing. It's not in his hand. And so when you think about the first story, there's multiple responses to Jesus. We'll talk about three of them today. And the first one is this, is that some of us trade up our indifferences for power. Uh, His name is Caesar Augustus. And in Luke uh, chapter 2, Uh, we we talk about the the Christmas story. And in Luke chapter 2, Luke says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went there to their town to register. Now, one response to the Christmas story can be power. It can be control. And that's what Caesar Augustus represents. That's what the Roman government represents. Because Jesus eventually will one day grow up and he will be called a rabbi, not really a name that he gives himself, but he doesn't dismiss it when other people call him a rabbi. Because when God is so incredible and beyond words and definitions, we still need words to compute him and put him in our brain, don't we? So he doesn't dismiss the fact that he's a rabbi or, or, or a teacher. And so some people respond to Jesus through anger, through power, through dominance. In fact, King Herod in the Christmas story acted that way. In Matthew 2.16, Matthew records, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years older 
uh, two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon that you get these religious whack jobs on the outside of the Roman Empire that over time would develop a band of brothers. Some people would think they were kind of cultish, but the Roman Empire always had their political eye throughout uh, all of the districts that they were over. And so if, 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 a, if a religious guy or a religious gal got a band of, of uh, men and women together and there was conversation about overthrowing the Roman Empire, Jesus would use the phrase, with the kingdom of God, everybody, the disciples and, and all of the politicians thought that this crazy guy, Jesus, is going to have a, a band of brothers, a band of sisters, and they're going to, with violence, overthrow the Roman government. So Herod... Because all babies in, uh, that are born in the hospital are threatening, decided, I need to issue a law and completely eliminate any possibility that my political career could be over. See, some of us, when we think about Christmas, in fact, when we think about Jesus in general, we know that that baby's going to grow up, and he'll be called a rabbi, and he's going to ask us, we call it in the church world, discipleship. He's going to ask us to follow him, to be a pupil, to be a student, to learn from him, to see life on his terms. But here's the deal. If you have a dominant personality that wrestles with anger, that's how you have that self-talk in your head, it's really hard for you to come to terms with. You actually have to follow and listen to somebody else, right? You know it's true because your spouse tells you your kids tell you, right? People that are dominant people, self-made men, self-made women, people that have um, uh, uh, direct reports under them, right? People that answer to them. It's really hard to actually sit in a church service and go, wait a minute, I've made it. I've got a great income. I've got a great house. I'm in, a, I'm in the right school district. People call me yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. When I sign stuff, people make money. People can cash checks. What do you mean I have to submit myself to a baby who can't even walk yet? Sometimes the Christmas story is um, r rather intrusive and offensive to us if it means we have to lay down our power, if we have to lay down our control, if we don't get to be the captain of our own ship, if we don't get to, to write the preferred future for our lives. And so for a lot of people, it's not like the whole like science creation evolution or prove to me that God exists, although there are folks that are like that and I get that, my brain is like that. But for a lot of us, uh, it's the decision of the will, it's the heart. That even if you had all of your answers, questions answered, would you still be willing would you still want to follow Jesus? Like, I have, I have tons of good intentions. One of them is getting to the gym in the new year. But I have to want to do it enough to actually get myself there. And so for some of us, we don't want to give up control. And so like Herod, we have to be the dominant person that controls the outcome of our lives, that controls every room that we're in. We get the final say, and we get our preferred future as we see it. And so for Christmas, it's really hard to accept a baby. Because we know one day he's going to ask us to follow him on his terms. And hopefully, if we do, we'd find out that life is, is more beautiful. Loving our neighbors, forgiving our enemies, being for all people is really the best way to live. But if we have our own idea of what life is, then wh why would we ever want to drop our defenses to follow this man who claims to be the Son of God? Now, some of us uh, don't respond out of anger towards uh, Jesus and Christmas because you, you are nice, compassionate people. Bless you. I don't understand you. 
Uh, Some of us respond to the Christmas story not out of anger, but out of fear. The angels approached the shepherds. That's a polite way. They probably freaked them out. But in Luke 2.8, Luke says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory shone around them. And they were terrified. Yeah, no kidding. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, because I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. People that know me, my wife, my friends, the staff, people that you guys are getting to know me, I'm a very jumpy person, okay? I am a poster child for a meme or a YouTube video that's going to go viral. All you have to, I don't know why I'm saying this, all you have to do is peer your head into my office or invite me over for dinner, and if no one else is in the room, all you have to do is peer your head in and yell out my name. Everything goes flying everywhere. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty, pretty jumpy, jumpy guy. Uh, It's easy for me to understand why some people would respond out of fear to the Christmas story. After all, if you read the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the garden to the manger, one of, if not the number one commands that God gives to his people is do not be afraid. It's where we get our English word phobia. And if we're honest, like when we think about God and we think about religion and we think about do we want to have a relationship with Jesus, is church really relevant? Is it a thing in my life? We can develop all these phobias that, that maybe, maybe it's not for us. Maybe, maybe we've been hurt uh, too much in the churches we've gone to in the past or the churches we grew up in. And so instead of uh, Herod, who would have been an infielder charging the baseball, we're more like the shepherds where we're fearful and we take two steps back trying to survey what Christmas is really actually inviting us into. And so instead of going after the person of Jesus, we kind of build a brick wall and we put ourselves um, behind it and all of our self-defense de- uh, mechanisms go up because we've been hurt in the past. Uh, things have been done to us. We've done things to other people. Um, people, uh, pastors have used the pulpit for their own agenda. Um, They talk about things other than what Jesus actually intended in the Gospels. And there's all different kinds of reasons why we respond out of control or fear. But my friends, if I could encourage you to think about, if I only get you this Sunday (laughs) and you never come back, I want to make this statement to you that Christmas is an invitation to trade up your indifference towards God for the love of God. Sandwiched between um, everyone needs to go register, and the angels appearing to the shepherds is Luke 2, 4 through 7. Luke says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for him, for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, I think one of the most indifferent, and I could be wrong, that's okay. Wouldn't be the first time or the last time. But I think the most uh, indifferent person towards Jesus in the story uh, isn't um, the political Roman entities uh, because they were not indifferent. Uh, I don't think it's the shepherds. I think sandwiched in the middle, you had the innkeeper. You see, in Bethlehem, it was a very small town, so it's not uncommon that there wouldn't be any room in the inn. I have a photo I want to share with you, because I always like talking about the historical context, so you can actually believe what I'm telling you. This is kind of like a home that Jesus would have been born in. If you notice, on the lower level, there's um, a general family meeting space. 
on the one side of the, of the home is the guest room where you would have a wall that basically goes from the floor all the way up to the upper level. And that was called the guest room. So when Joseph and Mary are knocking on the door and the innkeeper says, I have no room, what he's saying is another couple already booked the Airbnb room and there's actually no more room for you in the end. On the other side of the family room would have been where the animals stayed. And so a wall would have been built that would only went up about halfway, maybe to like your waist. This allowed Jewish families to feed their animals uh, during the winter months or even at night, and especially if there were wolves out there. Uh, they could take care of their animals while remaining inside of the house. And so when the innkeeper says, I have no room for you, what he's saying is the, the one guest room that I have, it's booked. And so part of being a Jew in the first century meant that you were hospitable. And maybe he was conflicted, but Mary <laughs> was in the moment of giving birth to Jesus. I mean, maybe if the innkeeper's mother, uh, or wife, not mother, uh, answered the door, maybe the Christmas story would have been different, right? She would have been like, oh, let me kick out the guest, and you can have the privacy of your own room. And yet Christmas takes place sort of in a little makeshift barn. In a, in a wall that only goes halfway up, maybe to our waist. There's absolutely, positively no privacy for this young couple. And, and Jesus wasn't put in a little nice little nativity scene that you see in churches. He was placed in a horse trough where animals would actually eat. See, for some of us, we've been beat down by religion so much that the only thing that we hear in church is that God is after us at Christmas. But that's not the gospel message. What the gospel message says is that God actually comes because he's for us. More than we could ever believe that anybody, anyone, or anything would be for us, let alone even ourselves. That's why Christmas is an invitation to trade up our indifference uh, for the love of God. Imagine with me, okay, G give you the liberty to dream here. What would it look like if Jesus went back to the innkeeper's house two weeks before his crucifixion? Because if, if the innkeeper had a little boy two years or younger, he would have lost him because of King Herod's power, his egomaniac that a lot of politicians have even today, to drive out any threat of God introducing himself to the world. What, what, do you think, what do you think would have happened? I'm giving yourself, I'm giving you permission to, to, to think about this. It's okay to dream. Uh, I think Jesus doesn't answer a lot of parables because he trusts our imagination to figure it out. What kind of conversation do you think he would have had with the innkeeper? I think he would have told the innkeeper that, um, I know that first Christmas was pretty crazy, but there's another part of the room that I need to go up to. And I think he would have told him the truth of 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son to the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God. In other words, if it were up to us, we would not choose to love God. So God initiates the relationship, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I think Jesus would have told him, <laughs> then in two weeks I'm going to be crucified. In front, of, in front of my mom, in front of Mary. Do you remember Mary? Yeah, I remember, I remember Mary. Because, because I'm going to go to the cross and make a way for all of humanity to celebrate me at every Christmas, at every Easter gathering, every day of their life. Because I am the God that comes for his people. 
Bob Goff, one of my favorite writers, tweeted this a few years ago. He said, later in his life, I bet the innkeeper wished he'd made more room than he thought he had for Jesus. Me too. <laughs> I, I identify with that. I don't know about you, but I live life at breakneck speed sometimes. Even as a pastor, I get paid to teach this book. And yet, oftentimes, it's hard for me to sit under the book and be developed by it. I want to encourage you, friends, to not remain indifferent this Christmas season to the person of Jesus. Because at Christmas, God is for us, not after us. There's one other, one other thing I want to mention about the first century homes. Upstairs where mom and dad and the family would sleep was known as the upper room. And on the night that Jesus was portrayed, uh, Jesus was in a different house, uh, probably outside of Bethany, about a mile, mile and a half outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus ultimately would suffer uh, capital punishment over this oppressive, power-hungry Roman government uh, for the things that he said, like, love your enemies. Uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he makes this final statement, and I'm going to read this as we head into communion. Uh, Jesus says with the disciples on the night he's about to be betrayed in Luke 22, 14 and following, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, <clears throat> I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. May you be reminded today, or maybe, maybe <clears throat> may you be told today for the first time, that regardless of whatever church background that you've ever had or didn't have, may you hear for the first time clearly that the God of the Bible is the God that comes for you, not after you. And at communion, at the end of Jesus' life in the upper room, he says, I'm going to break my body for everybody that is indifference towards God, for everybody that has never experienced the overwhelming love of God. I'm going to make myself available to you. And right now in this moment, we're going to celebrate communion if you're on the fringe and you're not really sure that Jesus is who he is, but you're happy to be here because you're invited, we just encourage you to pass the tray. It's completely okay with us. Uh, but this is a moment for you to connect with Jesus. It's a thought that you can trade up whatever indifferences you have towards God. However you pictured him, he's like for the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together today. We thank you for the overwhelming compelling love of God, and we repent if, if we communicate that in a way that is not inviting. Lord, we thank you that you're a God that doesn't come after us, but you're the God that comes for us, and nothing will get in your way. Nothing will stop you from communicating how much you love us. May we be that kind of church that gets out of the way, and we have no barriers between us and the people that are in our circle of influence that we can show them your love. We thank you for this quiet moment and what it means to us on different levels. Amen.